Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. This podcast contains graphic subject matter and is meant for mature listeners only. I'm Shay McAllister. I'm a reporter at WHAS 11 in Louisville. I want to tell you a story about a town in Kentucky, a beautiful, close-knit town where some truly horrible things have happened. I know everybody, so it's hard to also to think that somebody here in my town could, would do such a thing. A police officer with a wife and two young sons, a teacher and her teenage daughter, a 35-year-old mother, and 18 months later, her father. Four of them murdered, one of them missing, considered dead. All of the cases are unsolved. It makes me fearful to even speak of it. So that kind of gives you a little insight. We'll tell you about those victims and not only how they died, but how they lived. And delve into the lives turned upside down by these horrific crimes. Growing up here and dealing with everything that's going on now, it's like, I'm surprised this town's even standing. We'll dig into the theories around what's really happening in Bardstown and uncover a history of violence that connects this town's past with its present. It it just, it's a growing mystery. Whether the events are connected or not, it's a drumbeat and it's persisting. But before we do that, let me tell you about Bardstown. We want to make sure you get the full picture. Bardstown really is like a lot of small towns in America, and it is beautiful and historic. Dixie Hibbs is the town and county historian. She's also an author and former Bardstown mayor. I like to say Bardstown's a typical Kentucky town, but it truly isn't. It's very special, and it's been special for a long, long time. We'll go ahead and I will take the burden, of course. We here we do a two-ounce pour. Bardstown oozes Americana. In fact, it's the bourbon capital of the world. And it's home to the annual Kentucky Bourbon Festival. Bourbon is a big deal here. The town began with agriculture, and we still are with agriculture because bourbon is agriculture. Signs along the road call it the most beautiful small town in America. Bardstown to me is bourbon, music, and family. (laughs) It's a very nice, close-knit town. It really is. Everyone here is close. I could turn a quarter and I know everybody. And they always say they come for the bourbon, but they come back for the history and the ghosts and uh, all that, because we do have a lot of ghost history. We have a lot of just Jesse James, you know, historical figures that have stayed here. But just under the surface, there's something darker haunting this town. Something just behind the smiles and how y'all doing. Not everyone wants to talk about it. A lot of people would rather forget move on. And that is one reason I think that we have so much attention brought to us now because uh, this is negative attention and we're not used to negative attention. Today, uh, everyone's focused on us because some evil people, and I say people versus person, 
because we really can't say it's one person. Dispatch 139, Adam. This story begins with a police officer heading home from work. It's May 2013. 139, Adam, dispatch on scene. 139, have you on scene 1737? Jason Ellis, a seven-year veteran on the Bardstown Police Force, signed off the night just like so many nights before. His day was nothing out of the ordinary, except tonight, he doesn't have his canine partner Figo with him, and he's in a different cruiser since his is in the shop. About an hour into his shift, the officer, who had earned the title Officer of the Year in 2008, finishes up a few traffic stops and then heads to Dean Watts Park, where his son's baseball game is already in full swing. He shuffles to the field to coach, still in his uniform. But a few minutes later, his radio screeches, and he's off to another call. Dispatch to EMS, 139 Adam. No subject had fallen as a head injury. Subject is becoming combative. Give me in the roadway. 39 Adam in the room. Around 11 p.m., he calls his already sleeping wife. But before they hang up, they say, I love you. And he assures her, see you when I get home. I, I vaguely remember that quick phone call and saying, you know, I love you and I love you too and thought he would be home in a few hours. Amy Ellis was Jason's wife. They met in college and fell in love. He was a family man. He was outgoing. He was fun. He was energetic. His personality was infectious. He was always the life of the party. He was amazing. The night is full of calls and ends with one arrest who he takes to the hospital for injuries from a scuffle before toting him off to the Nelson County Jail. 139-122, gonna need you to divert to Flagey Hospital. The male subject EMS just brought in has become disorderly. Then he signs off for the night. 139, Adam, dispatch. 139, go ahead. Clear Flagey, 15, Rath County. His drive from the Bardstown Police Station takes him past my old Kentucky home state park, several cornfields, and the local Cracker Barrel before turning onto the eastbound ramp. The moon lights his way down the Bluegrass Parkway. Jason slows down to get off his exit for home, exit 34 to Route 55. As his Bardstown Police Cruiser curves around the dark, winding ramp, he sees something in the middle of the road. There are freshly cut and purposely placed tree limbs in the middle of the exit ramp. He pulls his cruiser across the ramp to block any oncoming traffic, puts on his flashing lights, and steps out of his cruiser to remove the debris. But someone is hiding among the lavender spring flowers just off the slanted pavement. When Jason bends down to grab an armful of branches, he's ambushed. Booming 12-gauge shotgun blasts ring out. He's struck in his Kevlar vest and under his arm. More shots penetrate the darkness and the officer. He's sprayed with pellets, striking his right upper arm, forearm, and right elbow. More plow into his scalp, his forehead, his temple, and his right jaw. He doesn't have time to react or to grab his gun from his holster. His body collapses to the pavement, and the tree limbs fall onto his legs. Blood seeps onto the asphalt below him, leaving a trail of red. 139 off the easel, 200. Hello, hello. Officer Dale, Officer Dale, Bluefield Road. Officer Dale. Wow. You need to give us a location. 
Chad Monroe, a stocky-built farmer, has just gotten off from work at his second job at Heaven Hill Distillery when he was making his way down the Bluegrass Parkway in his red Dodge Ram. Speeding down the BG, as locals call it, his windows are down, and he's blaring Tim McGraw's The Highway Don't Care on his radio, belting out the words above the country singer's melody. But when he slows down to take exit 34, police lights stop him dead in his tracks. Chad rushes out of his truck to investigate, It's a police officer. He's not moving. He tries to find a pulse, but with no luck. He frantically grabs the officer's radio on his uniform. Out of breath, he calls over to dispatch. We, we, I, I've come home from Heaven Hill Distillery. I've just got off work, and there was a, the police car is sitting in the middle of the road with the lights on, and I, we didn't know what it was. It's a tree across the road. And I, I, I didn't know what it was, and I got out, and I went up there and looked, and it's him. I believe somebody's hit him. Okay, can you tell if he is breathing? No, sir, he is not breathing. Body temperature is cold. Ma'am, can you about the status of the officer? Is he conscious? I, I believe he did. Soon, a flood of blue lights light up the night sky, dancing off of treetops, and illuminating the horror Jason's fellow officers are about to drive up to, one by one as they receive the call from dispatch to exit 34. Station 2, Station 2, respond to Highway 55. They're possible. Officer down. Spot 39. An officer in route, or what kind of um, run are we going on? Spot 39, we're not sure. We have officers responding from Barchtown. We Dispatch begins calling others to the scene, like the chaplain and the Nelson County coroner. This is Sherry out of dispatch. Uh, We have have a squad call for a coroner. I will believe we have one of our officers down. Uh-oh. Uh it's, they're all, they are on we think they're on the off ramp of the bluegrass at the Bloomfield exit. We had passers by calling in on the officer's radio and that's where we think they are on the off ramp at the Bloomfield exit. All right, on the way. Okay, thank you. He just said they've killed him. They've killed him. I said who who's they? And uh, he said I don't know. He's he's gone, chief. He's gone. Former Bardstown Police Chief Rick McCubbin remembers that night six years ago. It's about 3 a.m. on May 25, 2013. McCubbin is asleep at home when his radio wakes him with chaos. North County Police Fire EMS Thompson. It was a little before 3 a.m. And when, uh, you know, my phone rings all hours of the night, being the chief. But when I looked down at that one and it said Nelson County Dispatch... I thought, this can't be good. But when they called me, just immediately knew something wasn't right. And I think I remember asking dispatch, I said, well, how bad is he? And, and he hesitated. And when a cop asks you a question and you hesitate, 
you're either lying to me <laughs> or you, you don't want to tell me something. And so I knew right then, I thought, now this is worse. Than, and, and I don't take anything from the dispatcher. It's not his job to do that. But he, you know, he knew more than he wanted to tell me, but he didn't know enough to really give me a, a, you know, the full story. Booking it down the Bluegrass Parkway on his way to the scene, his officers start calling him. I remember he got in my car, and as soon as I took off out there, before I got onto the Bluegrass Parkway, just as I was getting on, my phone rang, and it was one of the officers on the scene, Officer Andrew Riley, who was uh, another night shift officer, Jason's probably closest friend. And, you know, he, I answered the phone. I said, what's up, Andrew? And uh, I remember him, he was sort of extremely upset, and um, he just said, they've killed him, they've killed him. I said, who, who's they? And uh, he said, I don't know. He's, he's gone, Chief. He's gone. And I said, you know, I'm on the way. Don't know what the hell I thought I was going to do, but, you know, I'm, I'm on the way. And, uh, you know, I remember got on the bluegrass, took off out that way. You know, it's one of, those, uh, one of those calls you make. Your lights and sirens are going at 3 in the morning, but you think, damn, can this car go any faster? And I know I'm rolling, but it's like everything just went into total slow motion from that point, from that point on. But when I got there, I just remember it was eerily silent. It was a big full moon, eerily silent that night because by that time, of course, the paramedics had arrived and, and there were two crews, I do remember that, and they were just standing there. The officers were silent, everything was quiet. Uh, the police tape was around the scene and, and uh, I walked up and the sheriff at the time was there and one of the troopers and um, I said, What's, what's tell me something and, and you know he said he said it's it's Ellis and he's gone and I said what the hell happened and I remember saying I don't know I said, what do you mean you don't know <laughs> and they said we don't know you know at that point and I just remember kneeling there and I, you know his his, uh, his leg was up his hand was on his kind of over like this and I remember put my hand on his knee and I just sat there and I thought what in the hell has happened I could see you know obvious gunshots um and uh, so I knew, I knew he'd been shot by looking at him, but you know, it was who, who shot him? There's nobody around, but, you know, and uh, I just sat there and I remember, I remember I started crying. I'm a pretty emotional guy. And I remember started crying for a minute and I, I thought, okay, you're the chief now. You gotta be the chief. Quit crying, shut up, be the chief. And I just remember at that time I had to turn off the personal side, the emotional side. And I said, Okay, here's what we got to do. And I just started throwing commands. The scene, his officers, it's a sight he'll never be able to erase from his mind. And it haunts him to this day. You know, it was the first cop murdered in forever. If, I think, the first cop in the county, but definitely the first cop in the city of Bardstown. You know, I had a moment where I just kind of lost it as chief or as, as just a cop. You know, I have a dead young, young man, a great cop who's dead on the side of the road and nobody knows what the hell's happened. Then I thought, oh my God, we gotta, we gotta go tell his family. That was uh, obviously extremely hard. Um, they knew something bad had happened. Um, and I remember, you know, just the, the buzz of so many people in the house. You know, you've got the police chief, you've got the, you've got the mayor of the city in your living room. You've got, who are all these people that, eight o'clock in the morning in my, in my house and where's dad? The blue family, <laughs> the blue blood family just got a, a, a bad hit, but nothing at all like what Amy and Hunter and Parker and uh, Jason's family in Cincinnati just took. 
Blue Bloods are Ellis's vast family of police officers, not only in Bardstown, but across the country. I've been to Bardstown a lot over the years, but this time, investigative journalist Jessica Knoll is with me. We're working on this podcast together. Jessica closely covered the story of what happened that night back in 2013, and driving into Bardstown, I ask her what it's like being back. Driving past exit 34 is definitely one of those places that gives me goosebumps because you know that's the last place he was and he couldn't even defend himself. He didn't even know it was coming. And a woman lost her husband, a community lost an officer, and his sons lost a father. And it was so just a tremendous loss. Jessica sat down with Jason's wife, Amy, in 2013, inside the home she shared with Jason and their two sons, Parker and Hunter. One of the things that stood out to me was at the front door, um, as you walk in, there was a pair of boots um, that were Jason's, and then there was a tiny pair of boots that was one of his sons, and they were sitting on a mat right next to the door, like they were going to be used again, and it was something that kind of stuck with me and you know she took me through the bedroom um, where they had a teddy bear that was made out of his uniform um, and she walked me through the morning you know how he gets ready in the morning sitting on the bed and to be in that room with them you know such an intimate place um, was very emotional um, and so you know she was wearing his ring on a necklace and, you know, she kept rubbing it as she was talking to me and, um, you know, she told me the story of how they met and, uh, and how they fell in love and, you know, it was, it was beautiful to hear that side of the story. But there were, there were, remi- I mean, it was as if Jason was going to walk through the front door because there were so many reminders of him. It was almost like he was haunting that house. It was, there was so much there you know, the flag from the funeral um, that she showed me and and held close to her. And at the same time, there were all these beautiful memories there. There were, on the mantle, they had all these framed photos of the family and him with the boys. And and so it wasn't all sad. It was these happy memories that, that she clung on to. And that was really touching for me. Jason is this picture right here. Kelly Eastman says family was everything to her baby brother. Probably after marrying Amy, the best day of his life was when his boys were born. They are both their father. (laughs) It's almost scary every time we're around him, we just see Jason. She points to a full-face shot of him, standing in the dugout with a baseball hat on and a cigar sticking out of his mouth. He was just a goofball. Kelly's basement in Cincinnati has become a shrine to their brother, with framed photos of Jason and baseball memorabilia from his time playing for the Cincinnati Reds farm team, his hometown team. There was nothing like being behind the plate for Jason. Him, just to have total control over a game. Right next to the Bardstown Police Station sits the Nelson County Sheriff's Office. Outside, there's a wishing well with blue plastic pinwheels blowing in the breeze, a bourbon barrel painted black with blue lines wrapped around it, with Jason's photo on top, and the words, end of watch, May 25th, 
2013. And on the side of the brick building, a plaque is mounted, etched with his headshot. In Sheriff Ray Penaroa's office, the walls are lined with blown-up photos of Jason and his family. The Army veteran who spent two tours in Korea joins in a fallen officer bike ride each year in Jason's memory. He took office in January, but he knew Jason when he was a deputy, and Jason was a Bardstown police officer. Went to school, went to the academy with him. I worked day shift, and he worked nights, so... I only saw him for about two hours of our shifts, responded to several things together and stuff, but overall, kind of like the class clown type deal. So you knew something exciting was going to happen if he was on scene. So Jason was a big uh, hunter and at the academy on downtime. A lot of us would sit in the hallway, which was probably very long, probably... 30, 40 yards from one end to the other, studying, doing things to prep for a test or whatever. And door opens from the rooms, people in and out. Jason pop out out of his room uh, acting like a turkey. So just things like that. Any idea what happened to him? I mean, I think everybody's got their theories, thoughts, but again, um, it'd be irresponsible to sit here and do this or do that, what could have, again, until facts come out and, and things point a finger to somebody. It's really quiet and dark. Yeah, the only thing I've seen out here is a bourbon truck. Jessica and I are driving Bardstown officer Jason Ellis's last route home. One thing that's always gotten to me when I've taken this drive before is just how dark this road is. There's no, hardly any lights when you're driving it. Yeah. You can understand how he didn't see anything coming. And it was the most horrific, perfect setup for someone to do what they did. We veer off to take exit 34, heading to Bloomfield. So the thought is based on trajectory. So there's, when you come around that curve, there's, it's almost like a cliff, an overhang that's taller than everything else. So the idea is that potentially there was someone up here and maybe someone down below in that ditch, trench area. Um, Both are highly concealable. I mean, you wouldn't see, as you saw when we were pulling around, someone could easily be hidden down below or easily be hidden up top that they're just waiting. So the first time that I came out here with Chief McCubbin, it was daylight and we came out and you could still see the blood stain, like a month later, it had faded, obviously, a little bit, but you could still definitely make out where he died. And then the memorial that had been set up on the side of the road at that time was, like, in line with this red, faded stain on the road. In those few minutes we stand on the overpass, we only see one car get off the exit. But the night that Jason took the exit, he wasn't the only one there. 
Someone was waiting. But Jason's story is just the beginning. There's been a lot of loss in Bardstown in recent years. It almost seems like everyone we meet knows someone or had someone close to them killed. There are a few cases where horrible things happen. I hear that there was a lot of underground things going down, whether it be with money scandals or drug scandals, money embezzlement, cartels, all that kind of stuff. Well, it's um, fogged it up. I don't know whether that's the right word. I know the police departments, sheriff department, state police, they are all so frustrated that the public expects them to solve a, a crime that they don't have enough evidence. They don't have, I won't say any evidence because I don't know that, but they've got to have some evidence. And it wasn't just to accuse people, you've got to have evidence they'll stand up in court. And if you arrest somebody, you're not arresting them for the headlines, you're arresting them so that you can indict them and try them and make sure if they, if the evidence shows they're guilty that they, they serve their sentence. The reputation of Bardstown, our hospitality does not include lawbreakers. That's what I want, I guess, to say. We open our, our doors and our, our community to all kinds of visitors, but we do not open our doors for people who break the law. And that kind of statement seems like it's laughable since we have four unsolved crimes. But we didn't open the doors to them. They came looking for something. We don't know what. Everyone here loves everybody, although we did have some some bumps in the road. <laughs> Everyone here is just so nice. Michael Unseld is keenly aware of those bumps in the road. When he comes home nowadays, Bardstown is a place of bad memories and loss. His father was shot inside his apartment above the Broken Tea nightclub. We heard the gunshot from here. And chaplain shows up and says, my dad's in the hospital, go to the hospital. Standing outside the rundown bar's gravel parking lot, just two blocks from the idyllic setting of downtown, the Marine stands, arms folded, wearing camouflaged pants and black boots with a gun strapped to his hip and an eye on every angle around him. He's on high alert. I hate coming here. I mean, I, I hate coming back. I really do. I can't stand there. As soon as I hit the airport in Louisville, I'm like, crap. I have to come back to this shit hole. And it's sad because it never used to be like that. Like, you used to be able to leave your doors unlocked, let your kids ride their bikes. You know, as far as they want to, take them to the store or whatever. Now, you go sit on your front porch, that's about as far as they go, it's about five feet. You can't trust nobody here at all. And that's what's sad. You got cops that are supposed to be doing their job and they won't do it. So now everybody's literally got to live armed. Michael isn't the only one who's seen the more sinister side of this town. Not even close. His story seems to be an all-too-common thread among the locals. It's a town brimming with questions and accusations. The answers just out of reach. Richard Caldwell grew up visiting his grandparents in Bardstown. Today, he describes himself as a citizen journalist. This is where my grandparents raised my mom, so Bardstown was always a magical place for us. Caldwell remembers the day Jason Ellis was killed. He's written about it extensively in his blog ever since. Well, everybody was just so sullen, and I, I pieced together what, what happened, that Jason Ellis had been shot the night before. Wearing jeans and a brown T-shirt with a long red ponytail cascading down his back, the 41-year-old seems a little nervous. 
Sitting at a picnic table, he delves into his theories. It seems like the these unsolved cases have kind of turned the most beautiful small town in America upside down and changed the way people look at it now. Yeah, um, I think it's made more people look at it. The Jason Ellis murder really slammed on the brakes for a lot of people. It made people locally and beyond stop and really pay attention. And I think events that have happened since then just add to that. In his blog, and now with us, he shares his thoughts on what he believes happened to the Bardstown police officer. Well, the hot gossip at the time was that uh, a local gang called the BMGs, or the Big Money Gang, um, they're big on drug trafficking, uh, um, that they had some sort of involvement in it. And I have cousins who consider themselves parts of the BMG. And from everything I've gathered, I think they're a bunch of kids that watch entirely too much television. I don't think that they would have the brains or the resources to execute the execution of a law enforcement officer. I mean, just considering the, the, the planning that had to go in, into it, I think it's an easy cop-out to try to pin it on, you know, some gangbanger wannabes. The angle was funny enough that it wasn't just some random idiot with a gun, and it probably wasn't even a hobbyist hunter. It was someone who knew how to use a long-range assault rifle. And there's a lot of veterans here, but there's also the law enforcement community itself. And um, I think the fact that Ellis was the newest police member, um, I think he might have unintentionally been making a, his fellow officers look a little bad. Um, maybe it was a Serpico thing, you know, where he was starting to realize that some of his fellow officers might not have been on the, the up and narrow, and maybe they saw him as a potential threat. But I think there's more evidence to support that than to support that it was just a bunch of, you know, dropout junkies, you know, who pulled the trigger. The fact that it was some, an experienced sharpshooter who had to have pulled it off. And, I mean, that's not my opinion. That was the conclusion that the state investigators reached, um, the Kentucky State Police, in their first investigation. I've heard crazier stories that it was a Mexican hitman who flew up special the day before specifically to take out Ellis. And I think that that's a little more far-fetched. Could it be that maybe the cops in my town aren't trustworthy? You know, that's, that's stuff that people should consider. Do you ever fear for your safety? I would think anyone does. And these are scary times we live in. The people who are supposed to be answering these questions aren't. The people who are supposed to be asking these questions within the community aren't. So somebody has to. And I want to thank that, that me and my meager resources, if, if I get wiped out, if I end up a body in a field or something, then there will be someone else who will continue. You know, there will be someone else to do it because truth, justice, and the American way, it's, it's, that's what everyone's supposed to be living for, you know? I mean, I'm not... I'm not scared anything would happen to me. I've heard things that are much crazier relating to most of these stories that I won't buy into. Perhaps the lingering effects from past crimes with a group called the Cornbread Mafia are colliding with today's Bardstown. Rick McCubbin and his friend, Glenn Crabtree, belly up to the bar at a local speakeasy and start telling us about the criminal ring. Based in Nelson and other nearby counties, their main cash crop, marijuana. So when you look at 
what's happened. I don't know what Rick in the past six years, seven years, man. Six, six years. There's a lot of tie into what happened back in the seventies, uh, in the early sixties with the Cornbread Mafia. There's just no doubt that some of that still exists, even though so many of them have been incarcerated and, and found the straight and narrow, if you will. It still, it still uh, lies deep within this county. Children still ride their bikes through town, and old men sit on benches under shade trees, talking about the weather. While hospitality remains its prime commodity, what lies beneath the genteel facade and just past the summer breeze is much more ominous. Beyond the southern charm is a thick cloud of suspicion, a belief that they're living among killers. I think there's a lot more polarization, if anything. Um, there's people who will defend the police to their dying day simply because they wear a badge, and it doesn't matter if that officer was caught with stolen property or selling drugs or something like that. They will defend them, defend them, defend them. We're kind of forced to take sides. And it, it, it's bad when, when the, the line drawn is, you know, a chalk outline. But I mean, that, that's, that's what Barstown has right now. As we drive back to town after talking with Richard, we catch the sun setting, dipping just below the rolling hills along the two-lane country road. And we contemplate. Was Jason Ellis's murder part of a more sinister plot within Bardstown? Will the police uncover who obliterated one of their own? Or is it someone they already know? Next time on Bardstown. Something's going to break loose to help solve it. So who stands to benefit from this murder? Because it wasn't an arbitrary murder. It was directed. It's frustrating and it's scary. You know, whoever did it, I mean, if they could do something that cold-blooded, would they do it again? It's also hard knowing that whoever did it is out there living. I feel like I would, we would like to have that closure and have them pay for what they did. Nobody, I can say this, there's no one here in Post 4, no detective, no trooper or what, that wants to retire and know that these cases have not been solved. You wake up and you think of things in the middle of the night. You're always thinking of another way, another angle. It's always going through your mind. Bardstown is a Vault Studios production. You can find Vault Studios on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and learn about our other shows at vaultstudios.com. Visit our website, bardstownpodcast.com, for more background and information about the cases we cover in the podcast. I'm Shay McAllister. A special thanks to our team, investigative journalist Jessica Knoll, producers Beth Peake and Spencer Brudig. Adam Ostro and Will Johnson are our executive producers. Audio production by Richard Humphreys at Tacoma Media in Silver Spring, Maryland. Real events. This was a homicide. Real investigations. As an investigator, I don't believe in coincidences. The Justice Network, the only 100% true crime broadcast network. 
a 24-7 lineup of true crime, investigations, and cold case files. These are signs of a serial killer in the making. Why did they do this? Why her? Visit JusticeNetworkTV.com to find us on broadcast, cable, and satellite. The Justice Network.